Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. I'm pretty excited about our topic today because it's something we haven't really covered well in the 10 years of Go Green Radio, and so I'm really excited to cover this. Um, I know that I am not the only one of us who likes to watch documentaries about sustainability topics, and I recently became aware of a Netflix original series called Rotten, and their sixth and final episode is called Cod is Dead, and it's all about focusing on the domestic seafood industry and the business and regulatory climate that has made it really difficult for fishermen to make a living. And it also talks about some of the things, and it kind of challenged me about what is sustainable seafood. And our guest today is perfect to help walk us through this topic. His name is Bob Vanessa, and he's the executive director of an organization called Saving Seafood. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Bob. We're so glad to have you. Nice to be with you. Well, before we dive into some of the issues that were raised by the new Netflix documentary, Cod is Dead, um, I'd like to have you talk to our listeners about the organization that you represent called Saving Seafood. What is your mission and who's involved? Well, Saving Seafood, we created it about eight years ago, and we specifically called it Saving Seafood because we wanted to make it clear that our mission wasn't to simply save fish for the sake of saving fish, but rather to save marine species that are caught sustainably and become seafood. The mission is twofold. One, we run a daily news aggregating service of, about the domestic seafood industry, and that's available free of charge to anyone who wants to sign up at savingseafood.org. And the other component of what we do is we run a national coalition for fishing communities, and that is a collection of organizations around the country, literally from Maine to Florida, from California to Alaska to Hawaii, and the Gulf as well, all of the coastal states. And we ask that the organizations that join us be funded by the seafood industry, not be organizations that that take money from elsewhere like NGOs, but rather be actually supported by fishermen. And we work with them to be sure that their issues get see the light of day. Um, We don't tell the organizations that they have to agree to any particular um, set of, uh, of objectives, but most, for the most part, they, they do agree. They are usually in agreement on bills, but sometimes a particular region of the country might have an issue of concern that isn't as concerning to other regions, and so we're, we, don't ever, we don't ever act like a traditional trade group and come out and say, this is our position, but rather we work to help organizations that are in agreement shine some light on their concerns. Got it. Now, the movie Cod is Dead depicted the plight of a lot of small boat fishermen in the New England area. kind of reminded me, I'm originally from the Midwest, and it reminded me of some of the struggles that I watched in my childhood years uh, for family farms and some of the things that they faced. Talk to us about how life and business is changing for small boat fishermen. Well, I think the documentary not only focused on small boat fishermen, but focused on some of the larger commercial vessels as well. Many of the larger vessels that do go out for a longer period of times, uh, you know, week to 10 days, some of the East Coast vessels that go out to George's Bank are also family owned. And there's a, a misconception that, you know, that, that 
that the larger vessels are somehow or other corporate and only the small day boats are, are, are family owned. And I think the documentary did a good job of pointing out that many of these vessels in fact, uh, are operated, you know, by family owners or by small, uh, small fishermen who do face these these challenges. Um, how things are changing? Well, things have changed dramatically in the last ten or twenty years. You know, really before the Magnuson Stevens Act was passed in um, uh, 1976, uh, you know, there was sort of a free for all, and also it was a free for all not only for U.S. domestic fishermen, but also. Vessels came in from Norway, from the former Soviet Union, from all over, and could fish up to 12 miles from the U.S. shore. The Magnuson-Stevens Act created the exclusive economic zone and took the 200 miles out to sea for the exclusive economic use of U.S. fishermen. And there was a bit of a free-for-all during that time, and there was a lot of government funding. People really hadn't thought about the fact that the, the oceans could be overfished. And so... Progressing from that time through the 80s into the 90s, by the 90s there were concerns about a number of species that perhaps we had overcapitalized the industry and needed to think about cutting back. And so in the 90s, you know, a lot of regulations came into play, and that has created a great deal of controversy. Some things have worked well, some things have not worked so well, and that's really what the documentary focused on. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, a lot of us are really outside of this world. We do not understand the fishing industry because a, a huge percentage of us just don't live in those port cities. So it isn't a part of our daily routine. So talk to us about the relationship between NOAA, the regulatory bodies, and the fishing industry. How have some of the regulations in the past couple of decades impacted the people who, who bring us fresh seafood? It's funny that you say that. When I in a previous existence, I worked on Capitol Hill, and some of the issues I covered were the nuclear energy industry and the space program. I worked on a lot of science and space issues. When I first took on working with our... I grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, actually, although my parents and father had nothing to do with the seafood industry. At the time, um, Berkshire Hathaway, which went on to be Warren Buffett's holding company, was a manufacturing facility there that Mr. Buffett bought. So that's why we were there. And... Um, uh, but I, I always had a, a concern for the seafood industry. I, uh, a woman in my high school class, a girl in my high school class, her dad died at sea. And, of course, the famous Whaleman's Chapel in Moby Dick is covered in cenotaphs of people who've gone down to the sea in ships and not come back over over the centuries. But I got a phone call right after I we announced that we were creating Saving Seafood from a gentleman who had worked in this industry for a long time who said, you realize how complicated this is, don't you? And I said, come on, I, I covered nuclear energy in the space program. How complicated can it be? Turns out it's much more complicated than either nuclear energy or the space program. You know, three, two-thirds of the Earth is covered in water, as you know. There are more species in the ocean than on land. And uh, fisheries scientists will frequently kid that the mathematics behind projecting future populations in forestry are the same mathematical equations that they use to project future populations in fisheries. But the difference is that in fisheries, the the beings that you're counting um, have to be counted when you can't see them. They move and they eat each other. So that makes it extremely difficult to determine the populations. Why I raise that is you asked me about NOAA and the relationship between fishermen and uh, you know the regulators and the regulated. 
it's really difficult in fisheries. Um, some of the regulations that have been put in place have worked out well. Some of them haven't. There are frequently times where the fishermen say what they're, say, what they're seeing and what the government scientists are reporting don't seem to be in correlation. And it's often difficult to determine if that is because you can't abstract from an anecdotal observation to a scientific observation. But there have been times when the observations by the government scientists have simply later been proven to be completely wrong. Um, one positive example of that, uh, which is a way to describe it, is in the scallop industry in the 1990s, uh, fishermen were saying that they were seeing many more scallops than the government observers were saying were there. Congressman Barney Frank was able to, uh, working with the then Republican Secretary of Commerce, was able to get some pilot programs. Uh, the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, uh, the Virginia Institute of Marine Science at William & Mary, and NOAA worked together, and using cameras, which had been de- underwater cameras that had been developed in the ensuing years, were able to go down and take pictures of the ocean bottom, and they discovered that, in fact, the fishermen were right, and there were a lot more scallops than the previous method of doing random dredges, random toes, had yielded. Another time, more recently, um, in the uh, around 2008, 9, 10, uh, the government scientists thought that cod, and this brings us back to the documentary, they thought that cod was recovering and that, um, that it had been a real success story. Around 2011, I believe it was, maybe 2012, they realized that they were actually way off and the cod stocks were not where they thought they were going to be. So the difficulty in measuring what's actually out there swimming, again, because you have to count them when you can't see them, they move and they eat each other, makes it difficult sometimes for even the best science to accurately measure, and that can be a source of contention between fishermen and, and, the, and the, uh, the regulators. Well, and that makes perfect sense. In the movie, some of the fishermen you know, did mention how they doubted Noah's findings. And uh, I, I'm just wondering, do they ever, does the fishing industry ever make recommendations to NOAA about maybe altering its methodology to make their data more credible to the industry? What kind of conversations happen around, uh, you know, the science in that? Well, way? they do. There's a, a few things. There are eight, the Magnuson-Stevens Act set up eight regional councils. It's a very unique system of government. There are eight regional councils around the country where um, fishermen, um, environmentalists, different members of the public with a nexus to the industry participate on these councils, and that provides advice to NOAA on how to set the quotas, how to set the regulations, how, how, to, how to do their job. Um, the other thing is, and this is a, a great tribute um, to NOAA, um, for example, I know that the Northeast Science Center, um, which um, until recently was uh, overseen by a, a, a scientist named uh, Bill Carp, who's now retired in, out in Seattle, and then um, the, the, the new head of the Science Center, have really done a lot to um, do what's called cooperative research, and that is to say to put scientists on the fishing vessels, on commercial fishing vessels, or to put commercial fishermen on the government vessels. And uh, I think that's a real positive development and something that can can really uh, yield fruit. Because, as I said, going back to the scallop industry, um, that was a real cooperative effort between the industry, which now, I believe it's 1% or 2% of 
all of the scallop landings on the East Coast go into a fund that helps pay for more science. And that science is frequently is, is always done cooperatively. Um, some of it is, in, is industry science. And so when you have the industry working together with the government, um, you have a lot more trust. And you know, that's, that's really important. Um, because again, a few years ago, we had the, the government used to have a curiously named vessel called the Albatross, and there was something called Trollgate, where they discovered that the trawls that the government scientists were using were not set properly, so they were not catching the same number of fish that they could have caught or that commercial fishermen using the same gear would have caught. And so those kind of mistakes tend to be magnified and create distrust between, again, between the regulators and the, the regulated. And there's been a lot of that in, um, in, in, in fisheries that has resulted in the distrust that you see in, in the Netflix documentary. Well, and that, that's such a good point, and it, it really underscores what seems to be such a common sense approach, which is, you know, if we're all going to be out on vessels, either catching fish or measuring the amount of fish, why not be together? Why not see one another at work so that, you know, we we do build that kind of trust that makes a, a, a perfect common sense approach, and I hope that that works out. We're going to take a quick break, but we have so much more to talk about, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Bob Vanass. He's the executive director of an organization called Saving Seafood. You can check him out at savingseafood.org. We're talking today about the fishing industry. Uh, we're going to get to some topics about sustainability when it comes to both what we eat and how it is gathered. Um, but this is all based on a, a Netflix documentary that I recently viewed. They did a whole series called Rotten, and it has to do with our, our food system. But the sixth and final episode is a documentary called Cod is Dead. And it really dived you know, sort of deep. It dove deep into some issues that uh, the fishing industry are it's really tough right now in the regulatory environment that they're in, uh, some of the challenges that they're facing, and how that might impact consumers. Before the break, we were talking about NOAA, and they are the ones who are behind a lot of the science that regulators use in order to set limits for the fishing industry. And Bob, uh, I've noticed that the president's proposed budget, which of course will get you know, manipulated a million times over by Congress, but it proposes some budget slashes for funding NOAA. And I'm just wondering what the fishing industry's position um, is on that particular budget item. Well, I don't know that there is a particular consensus across the fishing industry on the president's proposed budget. However, I'm reminded of um, an event I was at a little less than a year ago where Congressman Don Young of Alaska, the uh, the dean of the House, the longest-standing member of the House, who, by the way, was an original co-author of what is now known as the Magnuson-Stevens Act, along with former Congressman Gary Studs of southeastern Massachusetts. And uh, uh, Congressman Young frequently jokes that had the bill been named after the House sponsors instead of the Senate sponsors, it would have been called the Young-Studs Act, which he always gets a, a laugh line out of. But, um, you know, Congressman Young uh, likes to point out that the president issues a budget every year and the news media goes crazy about it. And those who whose programs were funded or the funding was increased celebrate it. And those whose programs for pet programs were decreased deride it. And uh, he always likes to remind people that it's really the Congress, specifically the House of Representatives job in the Constitution to start the funding process. So I personally tend to take presidential budgets uh, with a grain of salt and recognize that they're more about signaling to the Congress where the president would like to go, where the administration would like to go, than they are definitive maps to where we will end up. Some of the things that the president recommended cutting, um, uh, you know, some of them are, one of the things you have to understand is there are a lot of organizations that purport to represent fishermen. Um, the ones that we are affiliated with, as I mentioned earlier, are funded entirely by fishermen, by the industry. Um, some of the organizations get a great deal of funding from the environmental non-government organization community. 
and um, a lot of them get get different grants and have a different set of priorities than the organizations that that actually derive their funding from commercial fishing. So, a lot of the screaming um, that you're hearing, uh, you know, loudest. Uh, is coming from organizations, either environmental NGOs or the organizations that they fund. So I'm not quite ready to uh, jump on the bandwagon that the president is about to destroy uh, our oceans and destroy our uh, our fisheries. You have to remember that a lot of these organizations derive their income by inciting people to think that the sky is falling. And so I think maybe, um, you know, I think take a deep breath and let's see what, what goes through what, what what happens uh, when it gets to Congress. Sounds like good advice. And I, I know that I saw on your website there was some concern raised about the president's, you know, new approach to the food stamp program and some concerns about, you know, how that might impact the fishing industry considering that, uh, you know, at this point seafood isn't a USDA commodity per se in the same way that some of the grains and milk and other food items are and that if the food stamp program ends up um, delivering food to recipients by some sort of box or container versus having them shop for them in grocery stores or local markets or bodegas that this could impact the fishing industry but I would imagine that you're you have the same advice let's wait and see uh, but I will put words to mouth no, I think the devil's in the details on that. And in fact, I have a good friend who works at the Office of Management and Budget on the food stamp program, and I haven't had a chance to chat with him about what he thinks about that idea yet. But clearly, if that idea moves forward in any way, it, the, it's incumbent upon our domestic seafood industry in particular to be sure that it's properly represented. Ninety percent of the seafood that we consume in this country is imported, and most of the least expensive seafood that's available in, the, in our marketplaces is imported. So I think it's it would be... It would really behoove the domestic industry to ensure that domestic product is available um, to those programs if that happens. There are a number of species that could be harvested and and sold that are not really all that popular. Uh, on the East Coast, uh, dogfish is one of them. It's a small shark that is plentiful, and that could that's it's frequently exported for use in fish and chips and in the UK, and um, the underbelly is a delicacy in Germany. There are a lot of species like that. So I think if the president, whatever one thinks of the proposal, and again, I haven't spoken to friends who are expert in that area, whether it makes more sense to give people an EBT card with money on it and they can go shopping for themselves, or whether you provide people with a box of food that, uh, that, that you make sure is nutritious and balanced. I know there's difficulties there. Do you give an elderly diabetic the same thing that you give to a mom with children? No. I mean, I think it's a very complex question. I don't want to get into that. But if it happens, I think it's incumbent upon folks like us and the people we represent to ensure that products that are harvested domestically make it into those uh, those boxes the same way that the domestic dairy industry has done a great job with making sure that cheese and butter is distributed to the needy. I think we need to do that and make sure we do that with fisheries. Obviously, you're not going to put scallops and lobster in, um, but there are a lot of products, there are a lot of species out there that are reasonably priced, that are domestic, that we could consider. And they're also nutritious. Um, There's a wonderful program called the Seafood Nutrition Partnership that's funded by industry. It's run by a very engaging uh, woman named Linda Cornish uh, across the river here in Washington over in Arlington. And I think the Seafood Nutrition Partnership, which is uh, all about particularly 
uh, aiming at underserved communities and explaining to um, frequently women um, who, who are underserved the need to make sure that they and their children uh, eat seafood and particularly seafood with omega threes in it. Um, you know, I'm sure we would end up partnering with somebody like Linda and her seafood nutrition partnership group to be sure that the domestic industry is properly represented. So. I'm not quite ready to, uh, again, same thing, I'm not ready to condemn the entire idea. There are also a lot of people who frankly think that rather than be, um, that the harvesting component of our, our oceans, the seafood part, should actually be overseen by the Department of Agriculture and not NOAA. So that, the fact, as you were talking about, the, the, the potential for the way the government regulates different foodstuffs to affect what goes into those boxes, that's, that's a question that's actually come up already on the regulatory side. Hmm. That's really interesting. And you raise an important point that I want to get to because I think this will matter to everybody who's listening and loves to eat seafood. The movie and you just a moment ago made reference to the global fishing industry and sometimes the filthy conditions that some of the seafood goes through before it lands on a plate in the United States. And I would love for you to spend some time educating our listeners on this issue um, and talk to us about what we should do as consumers to either avoid these products or be part of a solution that helps clean it up? Well, I guess what I would want to be clear is, are there problems in different parts of the world? Yes, there absolutely are problems. There are problems with uh, whether or not the products are transmitted in a sanitary way. There are problems with whether or not the products are being harvested uh, ethically and whether or not there are people who are you know, coerced into working on some of these vessels. Uh, we've seen this essential you know, c- concern about human trafficking and essen- uh, you know, essentially slavery uh, in the, the product chains. And we've also seen situations where even importers who are doing everything according to the best UN uh, advisories on sourcing seafood appropriately and ethically have found that along the line in the chain, you know, boxes were moved from pile A to pile B, and in fact they were buying what they thought was ethically harvested seafood only to discover that there were issues. So I mean, there clearly are issues. Those have been well-researched by the Associated Press, by organizations like Oceana and others. But I don't want people to think that everything that is imported is uh, dirty or harvested by by slave labor. Um, what you, the, the answer is what you can do about it right now is somewhat difficult. Um, I'm not suggesting xenophobia on at the seafood counter, but I will say that if you... People should realize that under U.S. law, since the changes to the Magnuson Act in 2006, everything harvested and processed in the United States must, by law, be sustainable. So one thing you can do if you have concerns about this is look to buy domestic product whenever possible. However, again, I'm not advocating xenophobia at the seafood counter. Another thing to do is look for uh, look for some of the labels, like the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, look for also, you know, go to places that you think are, are ethical. Go to markets that you think are ethical. There are currently, and it's in its infancy, um, there are efforts to create certification programs to be sure that, that, the, um, that anything that you buy, you know, has been properly tracked along the way. 
Um, but I'll be really honest with you. When you're talking about imports right now, uh, it can be difficult. Um, only in the last two years, we've seen highly ethical importers discover that they were tricked. And, um, and it is difficult. I think probably the best thing to protect the public against that is the, um, the concern that is uh, now being shed on that. You know, the, the, the locavore movement, people wanting to know where their food comes from, whether they're talking about Brussels sprouts that were delivered from a local farmer or whether they're demanding the same kind of uh, chain of custody information, if, whether they go to Giant or Safeway or Kroger's versus going to you know, Whole Foods. Um, I think that's probably the best thing you can do. There are not clear answers yet. I don't have any particular advice. I can't say this will work, but you know, be an educated consumer the same way the same way you wouldn't buy a dishwasher without checking consumer reports. Ask questions and try to learn about what you're buying. I suppose, I suppose that's not exactly the the um, the, the most uh, comforting answer, but I think that's the state of of affairs at the moment. Well, I mean, it's good for us to know the truth. I mean, you know, Go Green Radio has been on the air for 10 years. And some of the things, some of the labeling that we see now uh, on food items and other products wasn't in existence when we first started talking about it, when um, consumers first started asking for it. So um, it's okay if there's not a ready-made solution. But if we at least have some idea of what to start asking for, if we at least have some idea of what to start looking for, uh, that's a step in the right direction. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Bob Vanessa of Saving Seafood. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. 
live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you're all with us today. In case you just tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Bob Vanass, and he's the Executive Director of Saving Seafood. And we're talking about some of the challenges that the fishing industry is facing. Um, I watched a, a Netflix documentary recently that I would recommend for all of those of you who are into seafood and especially sustainable seafood. Um, it's part of a series called Rotten on Netflix, and it's the sixth and final episode. The episode is called Cod is Dead. And just before we went to break, Bob and I were talking about um, this issue of the global fishing industry and some of the differences between imported fish and domestic fish when it comes to seafood. Bob, are there different standards for the American fishing industry and the standards for imported seafood? Well, there, there are different standards in every nation because fisheries are regulated at the national level. A few years ago, the Environmental Defense Fund, working with The Economist magazine and a number of universities around the world, rated each nation's laws uh, as to how effective they were to move that nation towards sustainability. The United States and New Zealand came out as having the best laws. Just under that were the EU, the United Kingdom, Canada. Uh, it's all available for anybody who, who, who Googles that study. And, and it goes down to other nations where things aren't going so well. So the standards are different for imports and for um, domestic harvesting because the standards are different in every nation. And this is something that has been an issue for years. I came across a newspaper clipping from the 1960s a few days ago where former Congressman Hastings Keith of Massachusetts was arguing for better standards on imports. So this is not something new. It goes back to issues that were raised uh, by then-Senator John F. Kennedy and Senator Leverett Saltonstall of Massachusetts back in the late 1950s and then raised again in the mid-1960s by Congressman Hastings Keith and many other distinguished members of Congress. So the answer is yes, and... Um, um, the, you know, there, there are regulations for imports, and they do have to meet standards, but there are, there are different standards country by country. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to how, in the logo of Saving Seafood, it says American seafood is sustainable seafood. And, and that's a, a term, sustainable seafood, that I kind of grapple with because I have a feeling it's not uh, – a universally uh, understood and applied standard. I'm not sure exactly what sustainable seafood means because I have seen different definitions of that term. And I'm wondering, well, I'm, you know, what, how, how your organization defines it. And if, is that different than the way American grocers and restaurants define it? 
Well, a few things. First of all, I'm glad you noticed that. Um, we actually trademarked that phrase, American seafood is sustainable seafood, and we did it specifically because we think it's important for Americans to realize that domestically harvested and processed product is, by law, sustainable. Now, we would consider sustainability to, we would use the same guidelines that NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uses in their fish watch program. Um, if a species is not overfished and overfishing is not occurring, uh, or if it is under a management a regime to move a species back to sustainability, then we would consider that species to be sustainable. There are a lot of different um, there are a lot of there are a lot of different arguments taking place right now. One of the movements that's happening right now is the idea of going from single species management, where the managers are entrusted to be sure that a particular species is not overfished um, and overfishing is not occurring, or if it is overfished that overfishing isn't occurring, it's moving back to sustainability. There's been a movement to move toward ecosystem management, which argues that you have to look at the entire ecosystem and be sure that, for example, you're leaving enough of a particular species in the water to feed other predator species that that prey on it. Um, The difficulty with that, and in a paper... Uh, it just came out recently. I don't, I'm not sure who the primary author is, but I know that Dr. Ray Hilborn of the University of Washington was one of the authors on it. There was a recent paper about ecosystem management, and one of the difficulties is that if you, you know, it's, it's, it's like the, a joke. If you put 10 fishery scientists and managers in a room and ask them what ecosystem management is, you get 15 answers. And the <laughs> difficulty that this paper pointed out is that you know, there are some people who consider humans to be part of the ecosystem. There are other people who just consider uh, who consider humans to be uh, the problem and um, and and view the ecosystem as existing uh, in a, in, a, in a vacuum without humans. So, it's um, there are a lot of definitions right now. I would say, and I would recommend to people that look at if you're if you're looking at domestic uh, species. There are there are the private labeling organizations like uh, the most famous is is the Monterey Bay Aquarium, but I would direct people to fishwatch.gov, uh, which NOAA runs and which will tell you at least on domestic species how the species is harvested, where it is harvested, if it is currently overfished or not overfished, what is being done to bring it to sustainability. And the reason for our motto, American seafood is sustainable seafood, is to communicate to people that for now 12 years, U.S. law has demanded that every species harvested in the United States be harvested to a standard of sustainability. Hmm. And that's enough reason for me to buy domestic, but uh, that's just me. I I think that's terrific, and uh, I'm really proud of our fishing industry. I want to talk a little inside baseball here because we do have a lot of listeners who care about where their food is coming from, but they also care about the laborers and the people who work to put food on our table, whether that's on land or on sea. And so I want you to talk to us about this concept of catch shares and why this system was adopted in the U.S. and and what the upshot has been so far. Well, it's not universal. Um, the concept of cat shares, if you ask the proponents, is they will say that um, they, that they, they believe by giving fishermen a secure share of the harvest that they will be entrusted with it and thereby it will provide a solution uh, to the tragedy of the commons. The problem is that 
any cat share system in which you look at a particular fisherman's history and give them a percentage of the quota based on that history, um, there are going to be people who who win and people who lose. Um, and you, there are, there, when they're being implemented, there are tremendous debates over what, histo- what historical period should be looked at to determine the amount of the quota that is given to any particular uh, fisherman. There are also concerns about privatizing a public resource, um, making it so that you take the quota and you carve it all up among people who are already in that fishery, and you allow them to hand that off when they retire uh, to to family, as if it's uh, you know a, a, a stock or, or bond certificate. Um, so there are concerns about the privatization uh, in in cat shares. There are places where cat shares have worked out well. People are are, are generally happy. Uh, those who received share in the in the crab industry, which of course people are familiar with from the the deadliest catch in what was called crab rash, the crab fishery rationalization in Alaska, those you know many of those people are are, are happy in the Gulf of Mexico. There are a number of uh, folks in the snapper and, and other fisheries that are operating under cat shares that are happy. And then there are places like New England where the, the, the program was implemented in a peculiar sort of way because uh, Congressman Barney Frank and former Senator, former Congressman Barney Frank and former Senator Olympia Snow had required a referendum among participants if any sort of quota system was going to be implemented. And to get around that, um, NOAA used a small pilot program that had been voluntary where fishermen could get together and put their quota together into what's called a sector. And um, a lot of people in New England say that basically what NOAA did was they made the common pool so unattractive that people were forced into the cash share system because uh, the argument is that uh, Jane Lubchenco, who was President Obama's first director of NOAA, uh, had been the vice chair of the Environmental Defense Fund. Um, implementing cat shares was a pet program of the Environmental Defense Fund, and she made it very clear to fishery councils around the country that she wanted to see cat shares used. So although they said cat shares is just one method of regulating, there was a lot of pressure to use them. But, you know, there are other species in the country, and again, Atlantic scallops come to mind, that are still managed on a day at sea basis where you tell fishermen where they can fish and how many days they can fish rather than um, than, than the, the quantity on any particular, uh, rather than the quantity. And they're managed quite well. So our, again, as I go back to the comment I made earlier about, you know, the, the multiplicity of species in the ocean, um, different habitats, it's an incredibly, uh, incredibly diverse environment, just like our environment on land ranges from deserts to lush rainforests. The oceans have similar diversity, and one size does not fit all when it comes to regulating. So um, cat shares have worked well in some places, but there are, there are a lot of arguments pro and con. If you're one of the people who feel that you didn't get your fair share of the quota and now you're closed off, you might be angry. And it also makes it difficult for somebody, traditionally in a lot of fishing communities, if you didn't go off to college, um, and you, you know, you, you started working on a boat. You could work your way up. You could buy a boat, and you could go fishing. Well, today in cat share regulated fisheries, you have to buy the quota before you can go fishing, and that creates another imp- impediment, a financial barrier to get into the fishery. 
Wow. And how has the cat share system, particularly in New England, led to some consolidation? And what's the impact that consolidation has? Uh, well, consolidation, consolidation was happening before cat shares were implemented. Um, I'm not an economist, but there are a num- number of economic studies that have implied that, um, that, the consol- that, it, that it increased consolidation. Um, and I, th- I think I think both the, uh, the the hard data and the anecdotal evidence suggests that that's been the case because a lot of people didn't get enough quota to actually be able to go out and fish. So they they uh, I think it, it has uh, increased consolidation. Um, the effect, well, um, as I just described, it it, um, it it certainly is a more difficult industry to get into under the cat share system and um, uh, we've seen some issues in New England that raise questions about uh, to what degree you know I'm not I don't want to I don't think it's different from any other industry. You know, you look at uh, oligopolies and the the monopoly problems that we had in the early 20th century in different industries. So competition in the free market. talk about one of those. (laughs) After we come back from a quick break, I want to talk about the Carlos Rafael situation and how that has raised some pretty interesting issues for the industry. We're going to be right back, folks. So don't go away. More Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, and thanks so much for tuning in as we talk about sustainable seafood. We talk about the domestic fishing industry with our guest, Bob Vanass, who's the executive director of Saving Seafood. Bob, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up Carlos Raphael, which I realize isn't everybody's favorite topic to discuss. But what's so interesting about his case is that the, the consolidation of, of catch shares that he owned, and then after he was indicted after he was, you know, uh, prosecuted. The question then comes back to who takes up ownership of those shares? What happens to his quota? Uh, Talk to us just a little bit about the impact that his case is having on New Bedford and um, how other port cities might be looking at this case and learning some valuable lessons. Well, what Carlos pled guilty to um, is clearly inappropriate and uh, reprehensible violation of the way that our fisheries are managed. But any suggestion that, you know, there's a little revisionist history going on with some of the environmental groups who are now expressing concerns about cat shares. I mean, back in 2010, um, people were so rah-rah cat shares. I remember kidding a representative from the Environmental Defense Fund and asking when cat shares would cure cancer because they had <laughs> made them sound as if they were simply going to be this tremendous economic, you know, a tremendous economic benefit to coastal communities. And, you know, the person who was the loudest in talking about consolidation, ironically, was Carlos Rafael himself at a forum at the New Bedford Whaling Museum that was attended by the head of NOAA Fisheries and all sorts of other very high-ranking officials at the time, organized by former Mayor Scott Lang of New Bedford, uh, Carlos stood up and said, I'm going to be okay. I'm large enough, and I can borrow enough you know, multi-millions to go out and buy quota from all of you small guys who aren't going to get enough to be able to fish. And uh, at the time, for whatever reason, uh, even though a few people did raise red flags about having an accumulation cap, I think there was such a gung-ho push for cat shares that the system that was adopted did not include accumulation caps. And you can't say that Carlos did something underhanded because he stood up with TV cameras aimed at him and said, I'm going to do this. And then he did it. Um, And the issue now, as the current mayor of New Bedford, John Mitchell, great guy, um, has pointed out is, and he was a federal prosecutor before he became mayor, and he's pointed out that there is a a principle um, that when the federal government convicts a high-ranking person, uh, owner of a company, whatever, that the innocent parties who work for that person shouldn't be harmed. And so now you've got a situation where, because of the issues, 
Sector 9, which is what Carlos Vessels fished in, the, the, the sector that they fished in, um, is shut down, and those people are not working. The gear manufacturers are not selling gear. The fuel sellers are not selling fuel. The port, it's really having a, a tremendous negative impact on the port. And that that is something that needs to be thought about in terms of uh, what happens when there's consolidation, what happens when um, when one entity has a, a, a great deal of control. But again, I go back to the comment I made earlier. We saw these issues... Uh, we saw these issues with, with, with steel, with oil. We saw these issues uh, with in telecommunications. Um, that's the reason AT&T was, was broken up. So this isn't new. Um, we should have been aware of it. And any suggestion that, that, that Carlos's accumulation uh, was something he did in a sneaky kind of way is ridiculous. And all of these organizations now saying that you know, they had concerns. Um, you know, there are, there are some organizations writing op-eds now saying uh, the concerns they had about cat shares. And then if you go back and look at their testimony uh, at the time before the New England Fishery Management Council, or you look at what they said in court when the ports of New Bedford and Gloucester uh, challenged the cat share system unsuccessfully in court, uh, you see some of the same people now uh, claiming that they were raising these concerns uh, when, in fact, their their court uh, documents and their their testimony does does not indicate that they raised those concerns at the time. Hmm, interesting, isn't that always the way? You know, speaking of raising concerns, I did see on the Saving Seafood website, and again for our listeners at savingseafood.org, that there are some commercial fishermen who have concerns about large-scale offshore wind farms. And I'd love for you to give us some insight about that because that's something I hadn't I hadn't read about before. So educate us on that issue. Well, one of the most important things about any sort of coordination between commercial fishing and offshore wind farms is the siting decision and being sure that these are not sited in a location where they're going to have negative impact. And one of the locations right now that is of the largest concern and is in litigation is referred to as uh, the New York Bight, which is the area uh, off of the west end of Long Island near New York City uh, off of uh, Queens. And the concern there is that this location uh, has not gone through the kind of process that some other locations have gone through where there was consensus agreement that it was in a place that would do the least harm. Um, particularly in the Northeast, uh, we have a map on, on the site that will show the uses of the waters um, from New Jersey up to Maine. And if you consider all of the shipping that takes place, Port of Boston, Port of New York, all of the recreational uses for the ocean, all of the commercial fishing uses for the ocean, uh, telecommunications cables. Um, these areas are incredible. The, the ocean, this, these waterways are incredibly busy already. So num- one of the absolute number one concerns is sighting the facility, and that is why the, the New York Bite facility is currently in litigation. There was a meeting um, actually in New Bedford a week ago, and a lot of the fishing interests have raised concerns that another area that is now operative off of Block Island, um, there are some accusations from the commercial industry that everything has not, that all the promises made have not quite been lived up to. And so that's another concern. Um, I guess to 
to, to make a very to, to make a very short statement about a very complicated issue, um, the oceans are a lot busier than people think. Um, you know, you might go whether you're uh, in California looking out at the Pacific or on Cape Cod looking out at the Atlantic. Uh, you might look out at the ocean and see this vast expanse of blue. But when you actually look at how it's used and how many people are using it and how it's used in so many ways, it you discover it is a very, very busy place. And putting something in that makes other uses uh, impossible creates a lot of concerns among competing interests. Makes perfect sense. You know, in the couple minutes that we have left, Bob, I'd love to know, you know, we're still early. It feels like... January 2018 was the longest year of my life, and I know a lot of other people felt that way as well, but we still have a lot of 2018 left, and I'd like to know uh, what Saving Seafood is going to be working on this year. What are your big issues for this year? Well, we want to work with Congress to, uh, there are a number of bills, uh, there are a number of pieces of legislation. Um, there, Magnuson-Stevens reauthorization, as I mentioned earlier, had last been reauthorized in 2006. It's up for reauthorization now. A bill uh, came out of committee a few months ago in December. It'll probably hit the floor in the spring uh, and then go to the Senate. So we certainly would like to see some some of the concerns, uh, some of the things we've learned over the last 10 years that have affected commercial fisheries to be addressed in that. Fantastic. I am uh, so, I wish we had another hour with you, and I am so um, hopeful that you will have a great impact this year and have a great 2018 because Saving Seafood is doing great work for the fishing industry. Folks, I'm so glad that you joined us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.